Good to be with you this morning. I'm filling in for Josh, uh, who is on vacation, and uh, filling in in a subject that's a little bit familiar to me. I've, uh, I've taught through the confession, both in our high school uh, Sunday school classes and in our adult Sunday school, school classes over the years, and it's always a pleasure to uh, work through that with you. I think the confession is a, a very rich resource um, in the Presbyterian Church. It always has been. Um, since its writing, you know, what, 400 years ago. Um, but uh, it, it, is a, it is quite a rich document. And we're going to look today at the second section of chapter 4, which is on creation. And if you all have a handout there, I've provided some of the um, material I'll be going over um, and uh, at least references to some of the scripture readings. But right at the top there at the beginning, we have the, uh, the text of the confession, which we'll be reading in a second. Let me start by opening us with a word of prayer, and then we'll get started. Father in heaven, we give you thanks uh, for this your day, and uh, we pray for your blessing in it as your word is preached, as your people gather to worship you, and even to remember our Lord's uh, death and resurrection, uh, we pray that you would bless your people. We pray that you would even bless uh, our senior pastor this morning and refresh him uh, in his vacation, um, even on this your day. Uh, we pray that you would bless us now as we study your word, even using uh, this document that has served your church so well for so many years. Um, we, we know this is not your word, uh, but it is based upon your word, and we pray that you would instruct us now as we study it together. And we ask these things with thanksgiving in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let me read the, the section that we're, and as I have grown older, I've started to need glasses, so I'm going to be struggling with these uh, Bear with me, but um, I'm going to read the, the second section of the confession in full, and then we're going to go through it, you know, line by line uh, as we go through this morning and as we have time. Um, this is what the writers of the confession or the divines of Westminster um, had to say with respect to creation. After God had made all other creatures, he created man, male and female with reasonable and immortal souls, endued with knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness after his own image, having the law of God written in their hearts and power to fulfill it, and yet under a possibility of transgressing, being left to the liberty of their own will, which was subject to change. Beside this law written in their hearts, they received a command not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which while they kept, they were happy in their communion with God and had dominion over the creatures. Um, the uh, primary resource I've used over the years as I've uh, taught the Westminster Confession is a resource that was written in the 19th century uh, by Archibald Alexander Hodge, 
who, uh, as many of you know, was the son of Charles Hodge, the great um, professor at, at uh, Princeton Seminary. A.A. Um, a. Hodge was one of Charles Hodge's sons, and A.A. And a. Hodge was also a professor at Princeton Seminary uh, after his father. Um, and I still think that A.A. A. Hodge's uh, commentary on the Westminster Confession is probably one of the best resources available, uh, especially for its thoroughness as well as its conciseness. So it's not only thorough, it's not only written from, uh, good morning, not only written from a, um, an academic perspective, I mean, he was certainly a, a theologian um, at, at quite a reputable seminary, uh, but also he was very concise, and so the book is, you know, not, not terribly large, but yet packed. Um, I still would um, recommend that to you if you're looking at resources in, in further study of the Westminster Standards. But as he goes through his commentary on the Confession, he always takes each section and summarizes it. This, and you have it before you under this section, teaches. This is how he would summarize this section um, from the Confession. And we're going to look at some of these in more detail, um, but I want to just cover them quickly first. Um, he says this section teaches five things. First, that man was created immediately by God after he had made all other creatures. And here, immediately, we're not speaking mostly in terms of uh, temporally. Uh, we're thinking more God created directly without intervening agency, if you will, um, without um, you know, the word, the root word there is mediate, um, a mediator or someone who goes between. Um, God was, uh, man was created immediately by God after he had made all other creatures. The second thing, and we're going to talk about that in quite a bit of detail. As you know, in this day and age, that is a very controversial point, um, especially in our, our land and certainly throughout the world. Um, but we'll, we'll talk briefly um, about that whole discussion uh, shortly. Secondly, he says it teaches that God created one human pair, male and female, from whom the entire human race has descended by generation. Thirdly, and this is a very important point for the writers of the confession, that God created men in his own image. And what do we mean by in his own image? I think uh, Hodge does a great job of summarizing that uh, succinctly in that it, it means having a reasonable and immortal soul. That's one. Secondly, it means having knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness, number two. And three, having dominion over the lower creation. Okay, so when we talk about we are made in the image of God, that's actually a good summary of what it means to be made in the image of God, a reasonable and immortal soul, having knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness, and having dominion over the lower creation. Again, we'll talk, we'll flesh that out a little bit more um, shortly, uh, but that's number three. Number four, that God provided Adam with sufficient knowledge for his guidance. One, he provided a law written on his heart. And two, he provided a special external revelation of his will. In particular, thou shalt not eat 
of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then five, that while creating Adam holy and capable of obedience and testing that obedience by forbidding him to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God also left him capable of falling. And of course, we know the rest of the story. We actually live the rest of the story um, of life in a fallen world. So that is the that is the summary of this section. Um, now let's kind of delve into the details line by line. And in the, the words of the confession, I've included there in bold italics. So we'll go through each uh, little phrase at a time. The first is, after God had made all other creatures, he created man, male, and female. And of course, there's a lot we could say about this. Let's uh, first look to the scriptures. Um, Genesis chapter 2, verses 7. We all know what God says in his word about creation of mankind. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. One short sentence, and yet that is the account that God gives us of the creation of mankind. Now, I don't have to, I don't have to tell anyone in here that that is not the account that you're going to get in virtually every single public, public university in this country, in virtually every public high school in this country, um, this is not the account of the origin of man that you're going to get. Um, interestingly, A.A. A. Hodge lived at the end of the uh, 19th century, and he actually wrote his, his uh, commentary on the confession in 1869. 1869 was 10 years after, just 10 years uh, after Charles Darwin wrote his you know, famous work on the origin of species. And the full title, there, there you have it in your notes, is On the Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection or the Preservation of Favored Races in the Struggle for Life, um, which, which really does summarize his main thesis, thesis in, that, um, in that work. Well, 10 years after Darwin wrote this, this uh, very influential work, A.A. A. Hodge made these comments. The scientific advances of the hypothesis of organic development, and here he's using the, the term organic development as a, as a uh, um, words for what we would now call evolution, have denied that man was created immediately by God and have held that the higher and more complex living organisms were developed gradually and by successive stages from the lower and more simple as the physical condition of the world became gradually favorable to their existence. And that man at the proper time came last of all from the last link in the order of being immediately below him. And then notice uh, Hodge's uh, assessment of this hypothesis. This hypothesis of development 
is a mere dream of unsanctified reason. Utterly unsupported by facts, not one single individual specimen of an organized being passing in transition from a lower species to a higher species has been found among the myriads of existing species, nor among the fossil remains of past species preserved in the record of the rocks. The, hypos the hypothesis is also rejected by the highest scientific authorities as Hugh Miller, Agassiz, Lyle, Owen, and others. And for those of you that aren't familiar with those names, those were some of the preeminent um, geologists, biologists, paleontologists of the 19th century. Um, brothers and sisters, Hodge's words are as apt in 2023 as they were in 1869. Um, we still have not empirically found proof of one species transitioning to another species. Um, we still have not found in the fossil records those missing links, which has become a very familiar term, those missing links that would show gradual development from one species to another if indeed um, the hypothesis is true. And yet, and yet, this is what is taught across the board, not only in our upper level universities, and, and in not only taught as hypothesis, but this is taught in our upper level universities and our high schools and junior high schools as fact. This is science. And one has to wonder, how does this come about? And why does this come about? Um, one of the greatest resources on, on this whole debate, and we certainly can't spend our whole time talking about this debate, but one of the greatest resources is a uh, professor by the name of Philip Johnson, um, who many of you may know. He wrote the, the book um, Darwin on Trial. Philip Johnson actually just passed away um, back in 2019. Um, he, was, he was actually, interestingly enough, a, a lawyer, a law professor, a professor of criminal law at the University of California, Berkeley, of all places. Um, and he has written some of the most profound um, critiques of the dogma, as he calls it, of evolution um, that has been written. And I just want to include a few excerpts from this, but hold it out to you as a great resource. If you haven't read Darwin on Trial, and uh, the work I'm referring to today is Evolution as Dogma is, is uh, very small. It's only about 17 pages for the, his main, uh, it, it's basically an essay, um, but it's, it's very concise and uh, right to the point. Um, if you haven't read this, I would really um, uh, recommend it to you, and especially for those of you that have children who are working their way up through um, our educational system in this land. 
um, I think it would be very helpful for them to understand how they need to think critically um, as they sit in these classes. Um, but how does this occur? <clears throat> um, is, is it, are we just blind to the facts? Or the, are the scientists just making this stuff up? What, you know, how do we get this, uh, this whole theory of evolution? Well, obviously what's happening is the, the scientists are actually doing scientific study. They're doing empirical evaluation. Um, but what they're doing is they're doing that empirical evaluation and then they're extrapolating from that empirical evaluation. That extrapolation is actually much larger than most people would think who haven't studied it in detail. And that extrapolation is fundamentally based on a presupposition, on a philosophy that I'm gonna, I'm gonna uh, read to you here from Philip Johnson. Um, one of the great, one of the, the most famous accounts that proves evolution, um, you've probably heard of it before, is the English peppered moth. Um, Philip Johnson says, the study of an English peppered moth consisting of both dark and light colored moths is one of the, the preeminent examples for uh, the, the, the uh, proponents of evolution. When industrial smoke darkened the trees, the percentage of dark moths increased due to their relative advantage in hiding from predators. When the air pollution was reduced, the trees became lighter and more light moths survived. Both colors were present throughout, and so no new moths no new characteristics emerged, but the percentage of dark moths in the population went up and down as changing conditions affected their relative ability to survive and produce offspring. So what's the empirical scientific data that we have to look at? We, we go out and we observe moths, and these moths come in dark and light forms, right? And we find that in the environment, in areas where there is heavy pollution, trees take on a darker hue and moths tend to be darker because as they perch on those trees, they're less likely of being um, gobbled up by the predators. And likewise, in less polluted areas, the trees may be lighter and moths tend to be lighter. Do we, does anybody deny those facts? No, I mean, that's, that's observation, that is, true, what we truly call science in observing empirical data. Examples of this kind allow Darwinists to assert as beyond question that evolution is fact. And how do they do that? And that natural selection is an important directing force in evolution. If they mean only that evolution of a sort has been known to occur and that natural selection has observable effects upon the distribution of characteristics in a population, then there really is nothing to dispute. I mean, if all we're saying is that these changes in the environment can produce you know, changes within a species of maybe color or hue or something like that, we're, nobody's, nobody's disagreeing with that. The important claim of evolution, however, 
is not that limited changes occur in populations due to differences in survival rates. It is that we can extrapolate from the very modest amount of evolution that can actually be observed to a grand theory that explains how moths, trees, and scientific observers came to exist in the first place. It's that extrapolation that is what is schmoozed over as we teach this in our schools. But, but what's behind this? Why would they do this? Johnson says, what the science educators propose to teach as evolution and label as fact is based not upon any incontrovertible empirical evidence, but upon a highly controversial philosophical presupposition. And what is that philosophical presupposition? The theory in question is a theory of naturalistic evolution, which means that it absolutely rules out any miraculous or supernatural intervention at any point. Everything is conclusively presumed to have happened through purely material mechanisms that are in principle accessible to scientific investigation, whether they have yet been discovered or not. And see, that's the key to the whole evolution dogma that has plagued our society for 100 to 150 years, um, is that there is an agenda behind this. Men don't want a creator. And if your presupposition is that no creator exists, you have to come up with some way to explain how we all came to be and how moths are dark and light and how you know, trees are here. But don't be naive to the fact that there is an agenda behind the dogma that's taught in our educational institutions, even in this land. And it was exactly the same, whether it was the year 1869, when Hodge wrote his uh, commentary on the confession, or whether it's 2023. Um, it really has changed very little. What other thing do they have to do uh, evolutionary, those proponents of, evolution, of evolutionary theory have to, uh, have to claim um, when, you, when you say that I've, things have evolved from lower life forms to higher life forms? What has to be the case? Um, especially if we can't observe any actual cases of that, either in our own lifetime or in the fossil record. What do we have to say? we have to claim it's millions and millions of years. See, all you have to do to prove that this can happen is just say it takes billions of years. Because then, of course, nobody can substantiate or, for that matter, reject your claim. Because who's going to live for millions of years, right? And so we have these accounts of things being, I don't, you know, I've heard trillions. I mean, it, it just keeps going up, um, especially when we, as we start moving out into outer space. Brothers and sisters, um, 
don't feel like you're unscientific. Um, I've spent my whole career in what I would consider scientific endeavors. Um, I don't happen to study geology or paleontology or bi biology. I'm, uh, I've, I'm in engineering, but I work with many scientists um, doing empirical work. Um, don't feel as a Christian that you have to apologize for your position based on scripture that God created man, male and female, directly, immediately, from the dust of the ground, after he had created all the creatures. And with respect to the age of things, it's very interesting. How many, in, well, I won't make you raise your hand and show your age, but some of you, like me, will remember when Mount St. Helens blew its top back in 1980. In, on May 18, 1980, very close to where you live, um, the summit was reduced on Mount St. Helens from 9,677 feet to 8,363 feet, a drop of 1,314 feet of that summit. Um, a crater was made that's a mile wide. And uh, the very interesting thing about Mount St. Helens and that volcanic eruption is the study of the, sedi a sedimentary study of that, uh, that whole stratification of rocks after the, uh, the volcanic eruption. R.C. Sproul, in his commentary on the confession, uses this as an example. He says, we now have good evidence that stratification of rocks proves the antiquity of nothing. Within days after the Mount St. Helens explosion had subsided, scientists discovered that the cataclysmic upheaval of that volcanic explosion had laid down exactly the same rock stratification that had been assumed would take millions of years to develop. In other words, Mount St. Helens proved that catastrophic upheavals can produce the same empirical data as 20 million years of gradual deposition or deposits. And of course, one of the other things that the modern world would call a fable, a myth, is the catastrophic flood that we are given an account of uh, in the first few chapters of Genesis. Well, brothers and sisters, we don't have time to continue on with this. Um, I just do want to, in light of the day and age in which we live, uh, encourage you again, and I know I'm preaching to the choir here. I know I'm not preaching to those that would um, probably even consider this as valid, but um, I just want to encourage you to hold to Scripture, to the Word of God. Um, to some extent, I think this is, this is where Psalm 2 is, is truly apt. Um, why do the nations rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, 
let us put him behind us. Let's, we don't need him. And what is God's response to that in Psalm 2? He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. To some extent, I think this is perfectly apt for our day and age, which has unbelievable advances. Nobody will deny that. And what are those advances evidence of? Man taking dominion over creation, even as God commanded him to do. And yet, man in so doing becomes so arrogant that he would put God out of the picture. And in doing so, his theories, his hypotheses are almost silly. They're laughable from a scientific perspective. And yet, to, a, to an institution across the board, we teach it. God created man, male and female, with reasonable and immortal souls endued with knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness after his own image. Let's talk about the image of God that, in which man was created. Ecclesiastes verse 12 um, is a beautiful poetic description of remembering your creator when you're young before you become old and, and the poetry that uh, um, most likely Solomon used um, is beautiful. Before the silver, gold, the silver cord is snapped or the golden bowl is broken or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain or the wheel broken at the cistern. Remember your creator before this and how does he describe death? And the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Notice the physical and the spiritual, the, the, the physical body and the spirit that God has given to man. Genesis 1, 26 and 27, the account of of creation, of course. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them in the image of God. And how do we describe that image? How is that, that image described in Scripture? One of the best places to look is in Paul's accounts of not the original creation, but the recreation, if you will, or the rebirth that comes with regeneration. Um, when the Spirit gives us uh, eyes to see and ears to hear and gives us new life in Christ. In Ephesians chapter 4, after Paul talks about what it's like to have the old man and the corruptness of the flesh and all the sins that you can go into, um, he says, put off the old man and put on, this is verse 24, the new self. And how does he describe the new self? The regenerated man created after the likeness of God in true righteousness 
and holiness. Again, in Colossians, he makes the same point. He says, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. And see, we see man was created with knowledge, with righteousness, with true holiness, and that actually is restored in regeneration. When God, uh, by His Spirit, gives us life and we respond in faith and obedience, it isn't perfect, and we'll, we'll get into this a little bit more in a few minutes. It isn't perfect in this life, but that original creation is restored to some sense in the believer, in each of, each of us. So, let's look a little closer at what it means to be made in the image of God, imago dei. Um, Hodge says this, God created man in his own image. This proposition includes the following elements. And, and these are the three elements I mentioned earlier, but fleshed out a little bit more. Man was created like God as to the constitution of his nature. And what is that? A rational, moral, free, personal spirit. The fact, excuse me, this fact is the essential condition upon which our ability to know God as well as our capacity to be subjects of moral government depends. And in this respect, the likeness is indestructible. In, in fallen, even in fallen man, this isn't, we, this isn't uh, destroyed. So we're created with a rational nature. We can understand knowledge as God reveals it to us, both in his created world and in his special revelation. Uh, of Scripture. And we can be held accountable morally, for we're free. We have a spirit. Um, and again, this is in likeness with Almighty God who created us. Secondly, he was created like God as to the perfection and, and integrity of his nature. This includes first knowledge or a capability for right apprehension of spiritual things. This is restored when the sinner is regenerated in the grace of spiritual illumination. And two, righteousness and true holiness, the perfect moral condition of the soul and eminently of the character of the governing affections and will. So we were created righteous and holy. Um, and then third, and I'll, and I'll go back to that righteous and holy um, in a minute here, but, and then thirdly, in respect to the dignity and authority delegated to him as the head of this department of creation, he was, he was told to take dominion over the creation that God had made, um, the, the, the lower creation uh, below him. Now, of course, in this day and age, even in the evangelical church, um, that man was created righteous is not a popular, um, is not a popular doctrine. Um, 
it's the it's actually um, and I wouldn't I again I, I need to be careful because I don't call most of the people in the modern evangelical church that wouldn't hold to this position um, that we consider scriptural uh, to be Pelagians. Um, I think there are uh, Pelagian tendencies in what they believe, but originally Pelagius held that for a disposition or habit of the man's soul to have a moral character, it must be self-decided. In other words, it must be formed by a previous unbiased choice of the will itself. Okay? They therefore, um, the Pelagians, hold that God created Adam simply as a moral agent, perfectly unbiased by any tendency of his nature, either to good or evil, and left him to form his own moral character to determine his own tendencies by his own volition or his own choice. So God made man, what do we call it? What's the word that's used? God made man neutral, right? He's not good, he's not bad, he's neutral, right in the middle. And he gets to decide which way he goes. And obviously, history is a record that man decided wrong. And uh, this is the result. But is that what scripture teaches? No, the scripture teaches that we were made in the image of God, which includes being made holy and righteous. Hodge says, if God did not endow man with a positive moral character, he could never have acquired a good one. Where would that good character have come from? The goodness of a volition arises wholly, and when we say volition, again, we're talking about choice here, the goodness of a volition arises wholly from the positive goodness of the disposition or motive which prompts it. In other words, you do good things or you do bad things based upon your disposition, which is based upon your nature, right? You don't, you don't, you're not sinful because you sin. You sin because you're sinful. It's the nature that's the problem, right? But if Adam was created without a positive, holy disposition of soul, his first volition must have either been sinful from defect of inherent goodness, or at best, indifferent. And indifference isn't godly. Remember, man in the garden had perfect communion with Almighty God. Could God, would God, have had perfect communion with a, with a created being that wasn't perfect? But it is evident that neither a sinful nor an indifferent volition can give a holy moral character to whatever dispositions or habits may be consequent upon it. No, Man was created righteous and turned from that righteousness. Man was not created neutral according to scripture from which he became evil. Man was created good from which he became evil. Ecclesiastes 7 is one of the best references of this, um, direct explicit references of this. See this alone I found, that God made man upright but they have sought out many schemes. And isn't that the story 
uh, to a great extent of fallen history of, of history in a fallen world. Um, finally, the last thing I would say about um, <clears throat> made in the image of God is uh, it's very interesting to note what God did after Noah came out of the ark after the flood. Um, remember Noah. Uh, made a sacrifice to the Lord. And then God gave him a specific um, command uh, in his covenant with Noah. Of course, he, he covenants um, to never again destroy the earth by the flood. And he puts his sign in the heavens, the, the rainbow. But notice what he also says. At, just, this is right after the whole of mankind has been absolutely obliterated. And Noah and his family are all that is left. Genesis 9, 6, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. And why? For God made man in his own image. The whole basis for capital punishment which, by the way, is commanded by God. The whole basis, yea, for government is that man is made in the image of God. That man has, um, has been stamped by God. That man has... Uh, a, a quality about him that can't be destroyed uh, by other men. That man, that, that God is the only one that can both give life and require life. And he can delegate that authority as he does here. By man shall his blood be shed. And again, that's why we have governments in this day and age. Um, that's why, that's the basis of government, is to protect, um, to protect its populace. Um, but that, that command comes and is a delegation from Almighty God. Um, okay, that's, uh, that's quickly through evolution, man made in the image of God, um, a lot of subjects. Any comments, questions you have? Anything you want to add to that? Yes, Eric. I'll get you, James, a second.
Right. Well, you know why? It'd take billions of years. Very interesting. James? Yeah, that's a very good. Uh, that's a very good question. Um, I certainly wouldn't say, and you know, I don't think anybody that uh, is a um, has studied the confession well would say that this is an exhaustive description of being made in the image of God. I don't know that we could, you know, exhaust that. I don't know that we could fully explain that, and uh, especially as it relates to the body versus the the spirit. Typically, the spirit is is what is referred to you know, the mind of man, um, uh, but, um, you know, it's, uh, I, I certainly think we, in, you know, when we know more, when God, you know, at some point, if he chooses to, uh, in glory, um, reveal to us more about this, we may be amazed at how much even our bodies were, um, uh, certainly Christ took upon himself our body, right? And in that sense, he became us. He became a, a, uh, uh, a man. Um, but in the sense of being made in the image of God, it's typically in when, when we talk about Adam being created, it is we talk about his spirit. Um, we talk about the rational uh, nature of man. We talk about um, his his rightness morally. We talk about his being delegated authority over creation, his dominion over creation. But it is a good question. Did you have a
They're, they're, they were to be, they were to obey what God had said. Yeah. Certainly in our lives, yeah. the a future promise that he would know what is good and evil yeah i don't <clears throat> i don't know that i would say i don't know that i would say it that way um knowing good at knowing evil is not necessarily not necessarily a good thing um uh so i think you i think you need to be careful there but uh i and i do understand what you're saying about c.s lewis um we, we need to be careful with C.S. Lewis as well. C.S. Lewis, of course, was a, a very um, erudite individual, but he's, he certainly was not reformed by any, by any stretch of the imagination. Um, and at, le- at least his understanding of scripture is not uh, uh, from a reformed perspective. Let me, let me hold off just one more thing. I wanted to get to one more point before we close, and then I'll, I'll take some other questions. Um, The confession talks about man created in the image of God, having the law of God written in their hearts and power to fulfill it, and yet under a possibility of transgressing, being left to the liberty of their own will, 
which was subject to change. Um, one of the things to, to understand is how man was created, what state man was in after he fell, what state man is in after he's regenerated by God, and what state man will be in when he is in glory. Um, here's how Hodge puts it. Adam, although created holy and capable of obedience, was at the same time capable of falling. So he was created holy but mutable. God angels and saints in glory are free but with nature certainly and infallibly prompting them to holiness in other words their very natures preclude falling right god cannot sin right his nature wouldn't allow it um, and so angels and and men when confirmed in glory will not be able to sin Devils and fallen men are free with natures infallibly prompting them to evil. They will sin by their natures. The imperfectly, and this is kind of in the middle, the imperfectly sanctified Christian is the subject of two conflicting inherent tendencies, the law in the members and the law of the spirit. And his only security is that he is kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation and so we're in that position of tension um, where we have the ability to do what is right but we still have the seeds of sin the seeds of, of the flesh that war against uh, the spirit um, and so we have that we have that uh, that tension there but it's very uh, very instructive I think to look at those various states of man um, in each of those uh, different uh, different stages of uh, history. Okay, that's all we have time for today. We can't, uh, I'll leave you with a few quotes um, by Kuiper that are very instructive, especially on uh, that last one on the dominion, man's having dominion over creation, um, and uh, leave that with you. Any final questions or comments? There were a couple hands before we close. Yes, go ahead, Jeremy. Yeah, very interesting point, yeah. Okay, last one, Eric. Yep. Yeah, very good, very good. Well, thank you. Let me close this with a word of prayer, and uh, we'll move on to worship. Father in heaven, we give you thanks 
for your word. It is truly uh, beyond our, our full comprehension in this life, and yet you have given us the ability to understand, and more importantly, you by your spirit have illumined our hearts and minds that we can know uh, both about you, your nature, about us, about our need for our Lord Jesus Christ and his salvation. And uh, you have given us the grace uh, to believe. We give you thanks and pray now that you would bless in our worship of you with your people. Um, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen.